until Jesus comes back. You know, we just got to deal what we do deal with what we got to deal with. Like, just accept the hand that we've been given. And I had a I had a hard time with that. I couldn't answer that question to my son when he said, "Mommy, does God have favorites?" Like, it, it seems as if other people um, that aren't black or brown are having this type of privilege and access and just you know uh, safety. And so if God really cares about us, why are these things taking place and why are these things happening? So to be honest, like part of it was I had to answer that question for myself. Let's begin. Blank paper and pen. Stories to tell. Battles to win. Deep breath and count to ten. Let's begin. Let's begin. Let's begin. Let's begin. Let's begin. What up, folks? This is Leroy Barber. This is the Sit Up Podcast, and uh, I know we have been uh, we have been slackers a little bit. We we it's been a little bit since we put a fresh show out, and uh, just get ready, folks. Get yourself seated in. We got a run of new shows coming at you. Uh, it's good to be back uh, with producer Andrew Morgan, and uh, we are gonna. We are going to start this this run out with uh, a look uh, at uh, the the lens of equity uh, and uh, want to know what you think about that. Uh, first, shout out to our sponsors, the Voices Project, UM, United Methodist Church of the Greater Northwest Area. Uh, and always a shout out to Matt and Amina Owen Brown, who 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 give us some fantastic spoken word pieces uh, for our for space on our show. So we're thankful uh, for those folks. So I want to introduce today Vilen Brown, and uh, I'm excited about this because uh, Vilen is an equity consultant. Uh, she is an entrepreneur. She is a woman of color, black woman, um, getting it done. And uh, we're always excited about, about being able to, to highlight the work of our women of color around, around, around the country. Here's the thing. She is a black woman, native Portland, right? And so this is going to be good because, y'all know, I'm not a native of Portland. I've only been here about six and a half years. And I'm always, there's always the joke wherever I'm speaking out and about, oh, are you the only black person in Portland? You know, that, that whole thing, because folks know uh, that Oregon is, is one of the whitest states in our country. Uh, so we, we, we want to talk to V. Lynn about what it is like being a native Portlander who's black. What is it like growing up black in PDX? Um, so and some of what some of some of some of the questions are like, how do you feel? How like what does it feel like? Right. To be or how do you feel about black folks coming in like me? Right. Uh, I've only been here seven years. It's the whitest state. I moved here from the ATL, right? Black Mecca. And I'm, you know, I got something, you know, I know what it's like to be black, right? Jumping out of the ATL and from Philly, right? And come to this white place. So, so V Lynn is the real deal. And so I want y'all to hear from uh, somebody who's black growing up in Portland. 
Now there's some there's some nasty history, right? Um, uh, you know, there was a flood in Vanport, uh, and there were black folks who uh, finally were quote unquote allowed to live in Portland. They joined some other black folks in Portland who had been allowed to be there to work and be professionals. Uh, but this flood kind of brought everybody together. So I want to want to hear some about that. Uh, so, but I got some questions. Uh, Some bigger questions out of this this interview. One is, how do you feel about someone moving into your context? How does that feel? Right. You there. You've been there. You have a history there. You know it. You might know the streets. You might know the people. Right. You know the stores. You know what used to be there. Right. All of those all those things. You got feelings of growing up. Right. That 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 sit with you deeply. And then how do you feel about somebody do coming in? How's that feel? Right. And 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 it's it. And how does it feel uh, when it's. Like somebody like me, another black person coming in from the outside, right? Saying, hey, I'm here. How does that feel for you? Now, obviously, that has connection points to gentrification that bring in race and and culture with it. But there's a general like, like, how do you feel about outsiders coming into your space? And creating new things in a space that you have been in. How do you feel about that? Right? How do you feel about creating new space in your space when it is changing and you don't want change? Right? Many people don't like change. Many people like resist change, but we know change is inevitable. How do you deal with change? How do you deal with new folks? Change when it's folks like you and change when it's when it's about gentrification, right? That you aren't the the old that you know is going to be taken over. I'll give you an example. So I grew up in Philly. And uh, most of my family still lives in Philadelphia. Friends, old friends, right? I go back to Philly, uh, you know, maybe a couple times a year. And when I go back, every time something is different, right? Now, I haven't lived in Philly for over 20 years. But there are places in Philly that are now completely different. I mean, massively different don't even look like the what it did 20 years ago you know i got i got in my head 52nd in baltimore from yo though you from those of y'all in philly like 52nd in baltimore was the neighborhood right and it's now like this gentrified space it's got the the fire old firehouse there is turned into some restaurant you got white folks sitting outside at tables on 52nd in baltimore 51st in Baltimore that like that would never like that was that was never part of the landscape and I feel some kind of way about that because that's that's my home my wife had her first job at a church right there in the corner of 51st in Baltimore right in a park across the street 
And now that part is surrounded by white folks. What do you feel about that? Does that get you some kind of way? I know it it does for me. So what is that? What what is our what is our resistance to change? And I'm an innovator. I like I'm hired to bring change, and I get some kind of way when it's that when it, when I see something that I think is mine that somebody uh, somebody significantly changes without my input. That's a rough space for us. And y'all know where I'm working now. I'm working in a space where I'm pushing deep, heavy change. And people are getting some kind of way. How do you feel about that? And then I guess that, that'll roll into a final thought for me. Like, like, what do you feel about places of worship and change? Right? Like, have churches changed enough? Have mosques changed enough? Have synagogues changed enough? Right. Uh, uh, that that where young people where young people are looking at it going, this is this is not a place I want to be. Because it's sitting in some old place. What are your thoughts about that? This is the sit up podcast. I am Leroy Barber. The interview coming your way with V Lynn Brown will be led by our producer, Andrew Morgan. Let's begin. We find our friendships at coffee shops and lunch tables. In green rooms and quiet corners of other people's parties, we skip the shallow small talk and pleasantries. We turn public places into living rooms. We decide to bear our souls. We decide not to hide where the extra folds have made their home on our bodies. We drink wine and margaritas and chai. We tell jokes over guacamole and queso and tortilla chips. We toast to cupcakes and butter rolls because who needs champagne when you can dish over donuts? Because calorie counting don't count here. Yo, round hips are welcome here. Here, we celebrate celebrate cellulite and stomachs that never return to taut after gaining weight or birthing children or slowly losing our need to impress people who care nothing about us here. We preach acceptance to each other. We say to each other, girl, love yourself the way you love me. The way you forgive me when I'm late, even though I say every time that I'm going to be on time, the way you let me cry when I'm angry the way you let me vent when I want to be mean to the world and to myself, the way you pray for my soul to find rest as you watch me carry my stress into panic attacks and migraines, we walk together, sweat together. We lift the weight of this world till our arms and souls are stronger for it. We try to mend each other's broken hearts by saying things like, remember that time when, like the time I was head over heels in love with that man who looked so good but his lips could never manage to tell the truth in that job you hated? How I called and you pretended I was a customer for the coworker who always eavesdrops on your conversations. That time that we switched cars to play tricks on the repo man. The day you found out you were pregnant and then your husband lost his job. Sometimes when we meet, we drop bombs about the parents and babies we've lost about grieving about jobs and promotions that mean new locations and cities, about finding new ways to do the same old things, about first dates that never make it to second ones, and we decide not to judge. You can never know the pain another woman hides behind an ill-fitting outfit or insecurity or too much mascara until you have not only walked in her shoes, but also know her pain and wounds, how she survived her scars, that it is brave to look yourself in the eyes every day and decide to love the woman who stares back. We are more than bestie or BFF. We are tribe and sisterhood. We are not what reality TV tries to convince us woman friendship is. We do not throw martini glasses and derogatory words. We hold each other up with grace and laughs and love just because, girl, 
we are here. Until we stop hiding our grays, until the generation after us begins to take care of us, until we help them stand while they help us sit, until we turn our porches into town hall meetings and drink wine to stave off sickness and can barely hear out of either ear because we dance too close to the speakers at all the parties and concerts with no regrets, with no, we haven't dreamed and done that yet. We carry the meaning of the word friend in the wrinkles of our hands. We take each other's stories and secrets to the grave with us. And welcome into the Sit Up Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Morgan. Leroy Barber is actually your host. I'm your producer, but I'm in here for Leroy today because we are in Toronto, Canada, and we are meeting with some of the most brilliant minds all over the world this time. Usually I say, you know, in the U.S., but we're in Toronto. So it's a special, uh, special occasion anytime we can sit down with an innovator who's doing something good. And today is no exception. We have Velan Brown with us. How are you doing today? I'm good, bro. I'm good. All right. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, let the people know who you are and what you do. Okay. Um, my name is Velan Brown, a founder and director of Faith and Equity. I am Northeast Portland grown. <laughs> um, and really, that's the start of where my journey in faith and equity began. Um, didn't realize that Portland, Oregon was the racist city in the nation <laughs> because I was so um, rooted in affinity in my Black family, my community, my church. And I found that has been a strength and an asset. Um, a base to go and really confront um, racism and white supremacy, just to be straight up. Having that strong foundation has really been um, my why and how I go out into the world. So you're from Portland. I'm from Portland. And you didn't know. So tell me a little bit about, okay, why? Uh, about that glass breaking. Yeah, like, right. Did, yeah. So my grandfather and his brother married sisters. So I'm a double set of Frasers. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon with over 200 family members. So from the neighborhood and, and that time, Northeast Portland in particular was very concentrated mm -hmm. um, with black businesses, black churches. And so it wasn't until honestly more in uh, honors classes in high school um, and college where I was like, oh, you know, um, there's different narratives. There's different um, power dynamics. There's different leadership because mine was so black centered. So tell me a little bit of truth about North Northeast Portland. Because what happens is, just like with all uh, Black people in our history, it tends to want to start, right. you know, with the bad thing. Right. And I know it didn't start with, you know, displacement. Right. So tell me some of the truth of what it was like growing up in that Black community. Oh, I so appreciate you bringing um, that positive narrative because that is what I knew. Um, my grandfather was a four man. Um, was a supervisor, manager for the um, Vanport shipyards. And so um, came from Arkansas on faith in a flyer, really, um, in the hope of the American dream, but came into a very multicultural, multiracial environment at Vanport. And um, it was because of his Jewish boss really seeing him as an equal that granddaddy was able to buy our family home under the table. Right. Uh, in Oregon at that time, it was it was there were exclusion laws. You couldn't be black and live in Oregon in that time. But because of 
um, this particular friendship that led to our family's wealth and just establishment. Granddaddy was able to uh, recruit other Black families from the South and again, turn that back around and resource. He started a, a barbecue um, restaurant. Um, he was all, our, that was the hub. Our My granddaddy's house was the hub of Black community. And so, I mean, I would be sitting on the porch with my cousins and see our principal would come through, um, someone from the store, the market would come through. Our lives are really centralized around community and also resourcing and um, supporting one another. So when you're not from Portland <laughs> and you come in as an African-American and you're trying to meet other African-Americans and you run across native Portlanders. Yeah. Does this explain what you just said? Does that explain the tight knit nature because you can almost feel like as an outsider you don't fit in because they is something there we've i've been given that feedback so much and actually people uh don't think i'm from portland because i'm so more open and inclusive and neighborly um it was the model of my grandfather that's why but we do team tend to be very tight in it because it was about survival um and then just being so protective over that um, circle that it, I've been told that we have, um, it's, I won't say it's intimidating, but it pushes, you know, outsiders or visitors out. Um, so I, I think you're right on in that. And I think it has a lot to do about survival, about um, we it's felt that most black people are just going to be transient. They're not going to actually stay. Most are there for um, Intel or Nike or someone like comes their internship and they, you know, begin to work there, but it's not like, are they really committed to coming in and also being a part of this collective mm, and community? Right. And so there's been times where we have opened up, but it's like, Oh, just be, just because we're not as deep as Atlanta or Chicago. And so it's not black enough. Oftentimes we protect the blackness that we are because we understand how we've had to be really resourceful um, and really scaled back like a remnant. We've really been a remnant in Northeast Portland. So what is blackness in Portland then? <laughs> oh, that's, I mean, what is blackness universally? I, I think it's it's so expansive and it's so diverse but I will say like you know growing up in Oregon you know we we like we even like the rain you know we like outdoors um blackness um still have a lot of deep central southern roots right so again my family from Arkansas um traditional especially church is very important and a priority uh family is very important and priori prioritized and centralized um, but to be honest, we've re I think that small town blackness is really um, has limited uh, my generation and younger people before m most of us are looking to go out because it is so small. And um, with that comes a lot of small mindedness. So it was through my quest for extending my blackness travels to Africa or even, you know, um, connecting with um, the diaspora of community that I was able to be a part of here and there. Um, but I would say a lot of Portlanders and I might get in trouble for this. There is this closed mindedness that's connected to kind of that small, small town um, environment. So. I love the fact that you're the, the point that you're making that when it comes to this 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 theme of blackness, that Portland's no more than really in the way I see it is like you're saying it's just it's just another after party. It's just we're all in the same groove, but 
You come to Portland, this is our taste of it. You mm-hmm. go to Atlanta, that's mm-hmm. another taste. Mm-hmm. But it's still connected. Mm-hmm. So in understanding, you know, we've established in this conversation so far, we understand the blackness uh, of, of being in Portland, what it's like. We've gotten a snapshot of that. So how does that center in with the work that you do? Yeah. Um, I really believe that we call it now affinity, like, you know, in terms of more uh, political and um, more uh, diverse spaces. When we think about a group that's been um, inclusive or set apart, we use the word affinity a lot. And I know for sure that that really helped form my um, sense of self. It helped sim- uh, form my sense of confidence because the messages and narratives and examples of blackness were so a part of my daily life from, again, family, home, church, um, community advocacy. Um, I was able to kind of live in that beautiful black utopia. And what I found is when I would encounter honors classes or even boardrooms, and I'm coming from story and poetry and a sense of community, it was always kind of was like a pause. Like people didn't quite know what to do with me. I kind of felt oftentimes out of place because I'm bringing in my home culture thinking like this is how it's comfortable for me to be able to flow, but understanding that there's a dominant culture in place that um, is asking me to subscribe to. And so um, in my younger years, I had to assimilate. I assimilated to be a part of that hustle. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom was like, yes, we black at home. But when you step outside them doors, you better have your books. You better be on point. You better, you know, have your hair together, straightened, you mm-hmm. know. So there were these things I had to check at the door. I had to check my blackness at the door. Um, and that became, over time, conflicting. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like I was living in two worlds. I felt the code switching took enough. It took a, took its toll on me. Yeah. Um, you know, being stereotyped as an Oreo and, you know, all the different things. And I decided, you know what? Um, I want to be myself all the time. And if I can find spaces like that, I'm going to find them. Or if I'm going to create spaces, I'm just going to do me and be me. And you have to have, especially in Oregon, with it being so white-dominated, um, I found that if I don't have clarity about that, I'm just subject to fall in line. So do me a favor. Let, let, let's let's take a little bit of time and let's walk a young lady or older, you know, any. let's walk someone through the trauma mm. that you just described yeah. of having to assimilate mm-hmm. and do these things that are unnatural to the context of how you were made. Mm-hmm. Walking through that wasn't an overnight or mm. isn't an overnight thing, mm-hmm. right? right? So. Let's take some time and kind of unpack just a little okay. bit of what are some of the processes that someone is listening to this right now and they're like, I need to figure out how to get to that space. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, first of all, having the support system to have the courage to know if you challenge or um push back in dominant spaces, you have a place you can kind of lay your head down or kind of recover and 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 um, be restored. More than that, for me, it was like, you know what, I'm just going to find POC organizations, 
period. I don't even want to play this game with dominant culture. And that took a transition. You know, it took me some time to get in that space where I could select those places. I still had to get the white education. I went to Lewis and Clark College. Like, there's things I had to do to kind of get my papers <laughs> to be able to get that freedom. But it was a very conscious choice that in order for me to live out more fully, um, I'm going to have to choose different spaces of being, period. And I have to be okay with that. So about what age frame do you think that you really started to realize that like you you needed to pursue this mm -hmm. and, and now? Yeah, I think it was after my travels to Zimbabwe and South Africa. Um, I was able to go on an overseas trip at Lewis and Clark College as the only black girl on the trip, which was a trip. <laughs> but I saw the model of black leadership and um, just this. Um, unapologetic way that people were navigating like there can be dominant black spaces to be our whole and realized selves and that for me was inspiring to go back home and reconnect to my um, be more strategic in my community about finding the young leaders um, the young thinkers even folks in church who were willing to give myself and others a place of leadership to grow, to expand, to try things on. Um, and, and it actually began with my father who um, saw my leadership skills and we began to partner in a nonprofit that we developed together, which is now Faith and Equity. Um, yeah. So do you feel like the church is one of those spaces, one of the only spaces where black people can get that voice? You know, for a long time, um, it has, it was our only place, right? It was our only space to be totally ourselves, um, where um, maids and, you know, um, you know, blue collar workers could come into a space and feel like kings and queens. Um, you know, part of my Black uh theology and upbringing was not about the blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus. Like we, I mean, we didn't worship black Jesus, but it was close to it in terms of us understanding that he was always one that was in favor of the most marginalized, you know, that, um, he was always down for the most oppressed, that he could be our advocate. And so that context of freedom, being free and being seen, um, in my faith walk, gave me courage and gave me confidence where I, I couldn't have that same display at school. We did, um, we had Black History Month teas where we memorized poetry and would perform it in front of the church congregation. Um, remember there was a time as a young person, we wrote our own plays as we were trying to wrestle with gang violence and just different issues. We, the church and my church gave us a platform to really express in real time relevant issues that were happening to us and the answers that we felt um, that God could provide uh, us in those hard times. Um, there's nothing like it. So when you tell me, tell us a little bit more specifically about your organization okay. and what the vision plan of it is now. Yeah. So um, I guess back to my origin story of what I was able to see more um, on a on a larger scale, like how my story and my community related to the context of race um, in this country, in my even in my state and city, I realized there was this piece of faith, affinity, and healing 
that were intricate. There's also this space of real learning and training to be able to name and strategize around ways of being that could dismantle or could disrupt. And so um, I honestly uh, was so burdened by you know, all of the killings that happened, um, beginning with Trayvon Martin, raising a black family, having a black son. And I felt like the church, even our black church, wasn't having a conversation about this. Mm -hmm. Um, There was this disconnect. And I was like, but wait, I thought the civil rights movement started in the church, (laughs) right? Like the forejourners um, who really were examples of this were activated and organized in the church space. But now when we talk about it, we're being too political with some of the feedback that I got that we just need to pray about it and let it go, you know, kind of like over spiritualizing it or just kind of like we just got to bear it. You know, we just got to, you know, until Jesus comes back, you know, we just got to deal with, we do, deal with what we got to deal with, like just accept the hand that we've been given. And I had a I had a hard time with that. I couldn't answer that question to my son when he said, Mommy does God have favorites? Like, it it seems as if other people um, that aren't black or brown are having this type of um, privilege and access and just, you know, uh, safety. And so if God really cares about us, why are these things taking place and why are these things happening? So to be honest, like part of it was I had to answer that question for myself and for for my children. Where is God in all of this? And if the church isn't willing to really be um, forerunners in this or at least stay alongside the conversation, I got to find a space where where people are brave enough to have that conversation. And um, I was able to find that at the Center for Equity and Inclusion. Um, my dear brother, Hanif Fazel, founder and director of, um, founder and owner of CEI, really heard my intersection of faith and race um, and was like, hey, sis, if you can if you can figure it out, if you can dream it up, I believe in you and I'll um, I'll support you. So I had some time um, because my salary was covered just to be completely honest. You know, we have to be resourced to not oftentimes be able to answer these deeper questions and to slow down and examine things. Um, But during that time, I was able to form a a Faith and Equity Advisory Collective, which um, I found other like-minded leaders, pastors, innovators, um, Christian directors who were also conflicted with how culture and race were kind of in tension with one another. And and most importantly, the faith community, the Christian, the evangelicals silence or response to it. Um, And so from there... You know, we read a lot of books, we did a lot of trainings, we had a lot of arguments, we had a lot of questioning. And from there, I kind of collectively built this curriculum um, and what I call an invitation to be and do the the work of love, uh, faith, and justice. And that's what Faith and Equity, I, I hope, does. It's a place of um, spiritual practice, of worship, of um, really entering in and being able to have honest time with God for him to examine the pain and hurt that that is that happens because of the results of internalized racial oppression and internalized racial supremacy and um, allowing time for the spirit to speak to that. 
And then we move from there to really learning how to name what is happening outside of ourselves and our relationship, our context to culture. So we start with individual, we go to the culture of of what what are the norms, beliefs, narratives, because I can feel empowered and strong and just like nothing can touch me. My black girl magic is on point, you know, one day, but what is it that in the culture that's triggering me and I respond and show up a different way or I I put my head down when I'm walking down the street when I see a white man approach me. You know, what are those kind of unconscious messages that are happening? And then after we understand and examine the cultural dynamics, um, how then do we go and reshape and reimagine institutions? Because the truth is institutions represent people and represents the culture of the people. And as long as we have um, the courage to speak truth, um, and to also have some answers or some lo- some solutions uh, to address what those gaps are. I believe there's an opportunity for change. So I got two two last questions for you. Uh, one is related to something you just said, and I just would hope that you could expand on a little bit more. You mentioned it's important to have funding. <laughs> yes. Um, tell me a little bit more about what does it mean for a leader of color? Mm and doing a space with resources. Like how how important is that? Man, um, that's so important. I feel, I think what happens oftentimes is that dominant culture will want to have our representation or our perspective on an issue. So they'll invite black and brown people to be the keynote or to lead the initiative or, you know, to, to be able to hold a particular issue because things are hot or um, they need to check a box or they may need some funding, right? And so there's this tokenizing that's happening. And um, I mean, the, the paycheck may even be a large one. You know, you're, you're excited because you got invited to the table, right? Keep talking about being invited to the table. But then when you begin to think about how authentically for me as a black woman, how authentically I want to live more free day to day in the institutions that I'm encounter, encountering or connected to, um, I don't want to. I don't want to subscribe to status quo. I don't want to have to because I'm only representing and I'm not a part of that ownership and I'm not a part of the decision making and I'm not a part of um, you know the structure. Then you can choose. You can take or leave my opinion. You can take or leave what I have to offer. Um, and that is, you know, it, it, it's not living free. And so my like, it's been amazing. I mean, even tonight, today here in Canada, um, you know, being resourced by a man of God, a black man of God, um, and having that same experience with Hanif, a brown man, um, really seeing and validating me as a black woman is just, um, it's so much more meaningful because I know we have the same struggles. We understand, um, what we're up against and we're learning how to be more creative and free in our own selves and our own power. And that's like a whole new thinking because of how we've had to conform so much to dominant culture. Well, I think you've answered my last question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, just in (laughs) case. As a black woman, as an innovator and entrepreneur and all the things that you are, you can go down and check the box and check all the boxes and give me an answer for each one. Mm -hmm. 
But in general, what community do you need the most support from right yeah. now? And all those different areas, because I could understand that you as a black woman may need support from a totally different community than you as a black woman who's an innovator. Right. Or just an innovator, right. drop the other titles, you know. So right. who what what how do you need community support in what communities? Wow, that's a really good question. And as I think about my calendar this week and all the people that I've connected with, I think it needs to be multifaceted. I think it needs to be a combination um, of many um, spaces of support and resourcing. The most intimate and precious for me, to be totally honest, is Christian POCs. Like that's that's where I can be all of my identities fully embodied. Um, but even within that context, um, there are gender issues oftentimes that I've been pushed, I've been pushed out because um, the male will get the space instead of the female. And so um, that's when I want to find more specifically my POC women, particularly black women in particular, where I can kind of come um, and talk about how do I, you know, navigate that intersectionality of gender and race. Um, I think too, you know, in terms of being an innovator, if we're not comfortable and liberated enough to still speak to dominantly, um, dominantly constructed institutions and funders, then we are still, um, we're missing out on opportunities. I, I won't compromise, but I'm not going to say I won't go to those spaces, right? So um, I think it needs to be a collective, and I and that takes a lot of strength and energy to be able to go into all of those different worlds. Um, but I think, again, it goes back to what it's been like for me as a little Black girl growing up in Portland that I had to learn how to be Black, woman, smart, creative um, because I didn't have like this extended black utopia that I could see it operating in. I had to learn how to bring all those identities here and there. Um, and there's some, you know, to be honest, there's some oftentimes I, I find myself checking at the door, but I'm, I'm trying to walk more empowered in that place of being totally myself and all the spaces and places that I go to. And I think that's what I'm learning a lot from the, my faith and equity community is really about how to be more full in all that I am and, and to challenging all of us to do that. Well, I guess that sound lets us know our time <laughs> is up. Well, thank you for all the, um, all the work that you do. Thank you for the interview. Hopefully someone listening will feel uh, that they feel more empowered to do their part to uh, topple these systems of supremacy like patriarchy and other things that are going on. So thank you so much. Let's begin. Let's begin. Let's begin.